But this is Luke, the physician, who was a Gentile, who actually traveled with the Apostle Paul. And do you remember he was writing this letter to a friend of his? Anybody remember his friend's name? Theophilus, absolutely, absolutely. An excellent friend of his. But this guy, Luke, was a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. And a lot of these uh, events that he's writing about, he actually witnessed firsthand, not all of them, but many of them. And especially later in the chapters, we'll see that he starts to speak in terms of we and of us instead of uh, speaking in, in third person of someone else accomplishing something. He said, we are the ones who uh, set sail for Rome. Uh, we were being tossed by the sea. The people showed us kindness. He kind of pulls back the curtain and shows that he's a part of this journey that's been going on for all these, these years. That he himself witnessed much of this and that he too experienced some of the dangers and the joys and the strengthening and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And in that first volume, known as simply the Gospel of Luke, he compiled a reliable first-hand account for his friend of all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is what he said that he was going to do, and he began it in that first volume of Luke. And then in the second volume, he continued. Here are all the things that Jesus continued to do and continued to teach, which brings us to another point about this book, and you may recall us repeating this a number of times last year. The work is traditionally uh, referred to as the book of the Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really more accurately referred to as the Acts of Christ or the Acts of the Holy Spirit himself, more specifically, because none of these feats of faith with Paul or Luke or Peter, Philip, any of these guys, none of it would have taken place apart from the Holy Spirit. And this is the crucial part that we need to take away and understand this morning and not just understand, but actually experience. The Holy Spirit's the personal presence of Christ himself, which is why Luke opens this letter in the first chapter with Christ himself. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 8. He commands the disciples in chapter 1 to wait for the Holy Spirit to empower them in order that they might become his witnesses. Wait for what the Father has promised, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even unto the end of the earth. And this book is actually laid out precisely in that, in that fashion, precisely in that fashion as Jesus prophesied this would be chapters 2 to 7, profile the acts of the Holy Spirit in and around Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12 talk about the stories that happened in Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to 28 describe how the Holy Spirit Spirit used a myriad of circumstances, including cultural clashes and challenges and persecution and perseverance from the saints and faith, trusting in Him, used all of these things to promulgate the gospel from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world. Aren't you thankful that the gospel went past Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? So along with all these things, persecution and perseverance, the gospel went forth. It's actually an amazing literary work, though, if you think about it. In chapters 8 to 12, we see in Judea and Samaria, these three guys that come up, Philip, Peter, and 
Saul of Tarsus. You might recall Philip and his encounter with the Ethiopian going to Judea and Samaria. He went down to Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them because he was sort of forced out of this area of, of Jerusalem and pushed into other areas because of this persecution that arose. And the point becomes this, that uh, if it hadn't been for the persecution and the hardship that arose, then the gospel may not have spread in the way that it did, certainly not in the time that it did. But the Holy Spirit used these challenges in their lives and empowered them to be able to be a witness. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to send my spirit. The Father's going to send his spirit, and I'm telling you to wait, and you're going to receive power to become my witnesses. And so if they would receive the Holy Spirit to empower them to rise above persecution, to rise above these things like uh, Stephen being martyred and killed or the Apostle Paul being conspired against and people stoning him. If God could use these things in their lives for the furtherance of the gospel and protect them and empower them in the middle of it, then guess what? He can protect and empower you in the middle of whatever challenges you face in life. Has anyone felt overwhelmed at any point in the last 12 months while we're going through this book? Has anyone felt like, wow, I just don't know how I'm going to get through this or what this is about? I don't understand. Guess what? Here's a profile of 30 years of church history of people who went through the same thing and worse. You know, I don't know any of us who've, you know, wrestled or struggled as, as Jesus to like sweat drops of blood, right? Or as some of these people, I mean, being beheaded just summarily off with your head or thrown to the lions or all of these hardships. And I don't mean to draw comparisons, but it's interesting. We look at these years of church history and we see the miraculous things that happened. And we ask, well, God, how come I don't see too many miraculous things happening today? It's an interesting question when you read that book of the Acts. And there's different interpretations that people have on those things. I personally don't see anything in scripture that said any of those miraculous things ceased at any point at that time. Some people believe they did. I don't believe that. We as a church don't necessarily believe that. Although some people have a diversity of interpretations on these different things. But it's easy when you're in the middle of hardship to pray for a miracle, isn't it? It's easy to say, God, help me. Would you do something here? And we all want that miracle and that miraculous thing and believe that God can intervene in those ways. But how many of us are willing to finish our lives out under house arrest? How many of us are willing to say, I'll forego the plans of the future that I had and I'll just run because people are persecuting me and Philip goes down to Samaria. And it says that he went down to Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them, to them, those Samaritans, those other people. And I think when Luke said to them, most people knew what he meant when he said that. Philip was sharing Christ with the people who didn't necessarily do things in the way that they did. There were people who were looked down upon. They didn't think in the right way or worship in the right way way that was prescribed you might recall Jesus with his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well and just how that was breaking cultural barriers and all the implications of that and similarly Philip was sharing Christ even baptizing people in puddles right oh there's some water there let's jump in and be baptized okay and they get out of the chariot and right there don't wait for a nice you know a pool of Siloam over there in Jerusalem 
They say, there's water here. What prevents me from being baptized? Let's do it. But this was revolutionary. This was revolutionary, actually. Meanwhile, Philip is carrying the word through the power and unction of the Spirit to the Sumerians. Peter is called by God to share the good news with a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. Now, think of this. Of all people, the Roman oppressors, Here's another example of those people that early Christians would have been slow to embrace, perhaps as we sometimes are slow to embrace those people or certain people who seem like maybe they're our enemies, right? This would have been a great chance for Peter to say, no, in fact, in the vision that God gave him, which involved him eating something that was touching something that was unclean, he said, no, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. God said, guess what? What I've called clean is clean. And in that story, in that vision, he was telling Peter, revealing to him that the truth and the good news of the kingdom was now going to these Gentiles, to this Roman centurion, to one of those people. The Spirit of God made it clear to them, just as he makes it clear to us, we need to share the message of Christ and the love of God, especially with those people that might appear to be our adversaries. And it's precisely this sort of openness to people and this sort of sensitivity to the Spirit's leading and this sort of prejudice overcoming love of God that makes it possible for a zealous Hebrew terrorist named Saul of Tarsus to come to Christ. So while Philip is down there baptizing Ethiopians and Peter's seeing vision about unclean animals. God shines a light on a Hebrew Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. And he moves upon the heart of a sincere disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And by the grace of God, he transforms Saul the terrorizer and murderer, the facilitator of murder and persecution of Christians. He turns him into the foremost apostle and missionary and biblical author of the entire New Testament, which is so amazing and so profound that even the believers who would have prayed for such a welcome transformation, they can't believe it when it actually happens. And Paul tries to associate with them and they don't want anything to do with them. We've heard about this guy. He like holds your coat while they're stoning you, right? He actually gets orders from the Jewish council to throw people in jail. And he came to Jerusalem and tried repeatedly to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him and didn't believe he was a disciple. And here again, we see that this gospel makes friends out of enemies. This is the essence of the gospel, and we see it time and again in this book. Paul would later write in his letter to the Romans, we were enemies, but now we've been reconciled to God through the death of of his son. God so loved the world that he gave, right? He gave his son and through his death reconciled us to him and us to one another and to those other people that maybe don't look like we do or don't act like we do or don't understand as we would like them to. God reconciles in Christ us to him and us to one another. This is the essence of the good news that Peter and Philip and now Paul were sharing in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But the persecution continued, 
And in Acts 12, James, the brother of John, was martyred for his faith. Peter was thrown into prison, chained up between two soldiers, but he was miraculously delivered. Again, we want the miraculous deliverance. Do we want to be chained up in jail? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the middle of the night and walked him out. And we see in this instance that God sees us in our hardships. God sees us in our dilemmas when we're hemmed up and burdened down. The Lord is with us to encourage us in those tough times. And after this, the Holy Spirit prompts the Antioch church to separate and to send out Paul and Barnabas. He says that in Acts 13. Remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement? On that first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And this opens up a whole new era in the early Christian movement, if you think about it. Now is when it begins to go out, and there are several missionary journeys that takes place. Their first missionary journey, the Spirit called them to, was in the interior of Asia. You can look on this map right here. In modern-day places like Greece and and Turkey on the, the second uh, missionary journey and the third one included Asia Minor Greece again and back to Jerusalem and we saw uh, something that happened repeatedly in each city that they visited Saul who was also called Paul he would always enter the synagogues first in each city that they visited Saul would go to the synagogue first there was this continual call of God on that next slide Jimmy to his chosen people, calling them back to himself. He entered the synagogues, and the people who had misunderstood and who had missed his coming the first time, he called them back to himself again. He was still reaching out to his people through these new believers of the early church. He hadn't given up on them, so that even the missionary pleas, when they first started going out on their missions, it would go to the Jews first in the synagogues, as Paul would write in his letters, and also to the Greeks and the other Gentiles. But in those synagogues, some received him and some rejected him. Some opposed Paul and Barnabas and kicked them out as rebels because this new covenant about which they spoke conflicted with the old covenant that had been in place. And so these early believers were seen as agitators coming against the status quo by the unbelieving Jews. And this presented a dilemma for that early church. What do we do with this Old Testament law? And more specifically, what do we do about non-Jewish believers? Was it enough to trust in Christ for salvation or do they have to be ceremonially clean in keeping with the laws and the tradition? So the Jerusalem Council of Elders comes together and weighs in and they write a letter and they said this in Acts 15, you don't have to become Jewish or ceremonially clean, you just have to receive Christ and by the Spirit of God and by His grace, keep the moral law, not the ceremonial law. Aren't you glad for that? And he said, stop participating in the pagan sacrifices. Abstain from immorality. You'll do well if you keep yourself free of all of those things, but you don't have to become culturally Jewish. And again, this was revolutionary because this was a movement that was primarily composed of Jewish believers, of Hebrews. Jesus was a Hebrew right? Paul was a rabbi, right? A teacher, these guys. But thankfully, you didn't have to become Jewish in order to experience love and salvation in Christ. 
So that marked another distinct turning point in church history and set the stage for the call to go out to the Gentiles. And as it did, guess what? It created more conflict, more conflict. If you thought that the gospel conflicted with Jewish culture, it really conflicted with Greco-Roman culture in cities like Philippi and Athens and Ephesus. And this becomes something of a paradox for the early church. Christianity was, in fact, this Jewish messianic movement, but it was ethnically diverse. It was based on faith in Christ, whether you were a Jew or a Greek or a Roman. And in the eyes of God, the gospel taught that men and women, slave, free, were all welcome and all could be received. All were equal in God's eyes. There was no distinction in terms of social class or gender with respect to God's love and his saving grace, which was available for any and all who would receive Christ. But the fact that these early Christians had an allegiance to someone other than Caesar, well, that caused some problems. Even though they posed no military threat to Caesar, in fact, their leader, Jesus, the Savior, the originator, he advocated for love and nonviolence. He even said, turn the other cheek. He said, love your enemies, right? This is just revolutionary. The, the Romans don't understand this kind of approach. So the only crime they could be accused of was not conforming to the culture. Has anything changed in 2,000 years? The Jews saw the Christians as being too secular and the Romans saw them as being too religious. And both saw them as not conforming to their respective ideals. Because as Christians, Paul would say in his letter to the Romans, don't be conformed to the culture of this world, but instead be transformed in Christ, Romans 12, and have your minds renewed and transformed by the word of God and by the spirit of God so that you can do God's will, you can prove what it is and walk accordingly. And this is our call as believers as it was for Paul and Barnabas, and those early Christians. But from there, we saw Luke segue to the final chapters of this book of Acts, to Paul's trial in Jerusalem and his testimony before the governors, Felix and Festus. Uh, the Sanhedrin said, we just want to kill him and get him off the face of the earth. Um, Felix said, you know, I'm not going to do anything with you. You can rot in prison for two years. And, and that's what happened. Festus said, you're just a crazy guy. I don't know what to do with the crazy. You're talking about resurrection. You see, the Romans had no clue, had no understanding of this. They, they thought it was just these fairy tales that were uh, too incredible. You're, you've lost your mind. Meanwhile, King Agrippa said he's not, he's not done anything worthy of death. I really can't charge him with, with much of anything. Meanwhile, Paul said he was being held because of his hope in Christ. He saw himself as being on trial for his hope in Christ. But interestingly enough, it was during this years-long house arrest under these governors, it was during this time that he began writing the apostolic letters that comprise our New Testament. He started writing these letters to the Colossians and the Ephesians, to the Philippians, all of these letters during this time where he sort of had provision. He had a safe place under Roman guards so none of the Jewish people who were trying to kill him could get after him. And he began writing these letters 
Philippians is probably the place that we're going next because it's one of the letters that he's writing while he was in here. We'll see about that, but that's probably where we're going next. But it's widely held that a great part of the New Testament was written while he was imprisoned in Caesarea and ultimately in Rome. And I love that final testimony there. Luke gives in Acts 28, the gospel of the kingdom of God and the teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ was going forth with all openness, unhindered, right under Caesar's nose. Right there under the Roman guards, they said the gospel of Jesus Christ is unhindered while Paul was under lock and key. Offering us an example that even when we feel hindered or even when we may experience hardship or possibly even persecution, the good news of the gospel is not limited and can still go forth in the life of the believer. Which brings me to my biggest takeaway from this book of the Acts. And it's the words from Christ himself in chapter 1. This book which profiles the work of the Holy Spirit that came on the believers and empowered them for godly living and for witnessing to the truth and the reality of the kingdom of God to the people around them. It chronicles the spread of the good news from Jerusalem to the world. But the biggest takeaway for me is that none of this is even possible without the Spirit of God. There's absolutely no way that we will see a church that looks anything at all like this book of the Acts if we too aren't filled with the Holy Spirit, if we too aren't moved upon by the Spirit of God as they were. Apart from the Spirit of God, there's no life and there's no witness. The essence of the new covenant in Christ is this. God says, I will send my spirit and I will take out the heart of stone. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll write my laws on your heart and I'll cause my people to walk in my ways. This is the essence of this New Testament. We don't have any hope of trying to walk a Christ-like life without the spirit of Christ in us and upon us without us cooperating and yielding to the Holy Spirit day in and day out. And it's more than having an experience on a Sunday morning and then walking away from it and kind of doing our own thing during the week and coming back again. Hey, I'm glad for every person that walks in here and every experience that we have in church. We need to experience the Holy Spirit in times of worship and times of prayer and in the word that we share. And we need to carry that Holy Spirit with us. They were empowered. They were different people after they experienced the Holy Spirit. And so as we think about what we take away from this, I pray we don't just take away sort of a mental ascent and and a consideration on an academic level of what the words are on these pages, man. The words on this page, this book of the Acts, is is really isn't going to help anybody with anything if the Holy Spirit isn't a part of this experience. And if I don't say, Lord, fill me with your spirit, fill me with your presence, this is literally just, you know, juice and a wafer. If we don't commune with the Lord in this time, if we don't say, Lord, I'm giving you my life. You love me enough that you gave, Lord. I want to give myself to you. It's not my life anyway. If he takes his spirit away, 
I'm gone, just like that. But the history and the church governance and the theological questions, none of that matters if we aren't moved upon and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We're going to close with communion. And this is a prime opportunity to practice everything we've been talking about with this book of the Acts over the past year. It's a perfect opportunity to ask the Father to send His Spirit to us. Not in some ritual or religious way, but in earnest, in responsive obedience to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, ask of the Father. He loves to give His Spirit to those who ask that we too might know him more, that we might become the witnesses in the 21st century that these people were in the first century. And if that's your heart, if that's your prayer and your desire today to be filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, to be who he's called you to be, and to become a witness for him, And I'm just going to invite you right now to come forward and partake of these elements. We'll take them together after everybody is received. 